Welcome back, my friends, to the Big Book Podcast. My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. This is the 69th episode, story number nine in part two of the personal stories section of the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, published in 1955. It's entitled, Physician, Heal Thyself, and it was printed in the second, third, and fourth editions. This story was written by Dr. Earl M. from San Francisco, who got sober in June of 1953. Earl was a very active member of AA throughout his life, spreading its message of hope to those he touched in his medical practice, as well as countless alcoholics he met during his many worldwide travels. In his first year of sobriety, Earl met Bill W. in New York, became close friends, and frequently visited Bill and Lois at their home, Stepping Stones. Earl referred to Bill as one of his sponsors and is said to have taken his fifth step with Bill. Over the years, they discussed Bill's bouts with depression and their shared interest in spiritual practices and quests for serenity. In an interview published in the October 1995 edition of The Grapevine, Earl recounted a request that Bill W. made of him prior to Earl's extended visit to Southeast Asia. He quoted Bill as saying, Do me a favor. When you get over to Asia, see if you can investigate firsthand the various religions of Asia. That means Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, and ancestral worship, and the whole shebang. And he said, stay in contact with me, and maybe we can find something in those religions. After all, we've taken from William James, we've taken from all the Christian religions. Let's see what these others have. Dr. Earl M. was sober 49 years when he died in 2003 at the age of 92. And now, Part 2, Story 9. Physician, Heal Thyself. Psychiatrist and surgeon, he had lost his way until he realized that God, not he, was the great healer. I am a physician licensed to practice in a western state. I am also an alcoholic. In two ways, I may be a little different from other alcoholics. First, we all hear at AA meetings about those who have lost everything, those who have been in jail, those who have been in prison, those who have lost their families, those who have lost their income. I never lost any of it. I never was on Skid Row. I made more money the last year of my drinking than I ever made before in my whole life. My wife never hinted that she would leave me. Everything that I touched from grammar school on was successful. I was president of my grammar school student body. I was president of all my classes in high school, and in my last year I was president of that student body. I was president of each class in the university and president of that student body. I was voted the man most likely to succeed. The same thing occurred in medical school. I belonged to more medical societies and honor societies than men 10 to 20 years my senior. Mine was the skid row of success. The physical skid row in any city is miserable. The skid row of success is just as miserable. The second way in which, perhaps, I differ from some other alcoholics is this. Many alcoholics state that they didn't particularly like the taste of alcohol, but that they liked the effect. I loved alcohol. I used to like to get it on my fingers so I could lick them and get another taste. 
I had a lot of fun drinking. I enjoyed it immensely. And then, one ill-defined day, one day that I can't recall, I stepped across the line that alcoholics know so well, and from that day on, drinking was miserable. When a few drinks made me feel good before I went over that line, those same drinks now made me wretched. In an attempt to get over that feeling, there was a quick onslaught of a greater number of drinks, and then all was lost. Alcohol failed to serve the purpose. On the last day I was drinking, I went up to see a friend who had had a good deal of trouble with alcohol and whose wife had left him a number of times. He had come back, however, and he was on this program. In my stupid way, I went up to see him with the idea in the back of my mind that I would investigate Alcoholics Anonymous from a medical standpoint. Deep in my heart was the feeling that maybe I could get some help here. This friend gave me a pamphlet, and I took it home and had my wife read it to me. There were two sentences in it that struck me. One said, Don't feel you are a martyr because you stopped drinking. And this hit me between the eyes. The second one said, Don't feel that you stopped drinking for anyone other than yourself. And this hit me between the eyes. After my wife had read this to me, I said to her, as I had said so many times in desperation, I have got to do something. She is a good-natured soul and said, I wouldn't worry about it. Probably something will happen. And then we went up the side of a hill where we have a little barbecue area to make the fire for the barbecue. And on the way up, I thought to myself, I'll go back down to the kitchen and refill this drink. And just then something did happen. The thought came to me, this is the last one. I was well into the second fifth by this time, and as that thought came to me, it was as though someone had reached down and taken a heavy overcoat off my shoulders, for that was the last one. About two days later, I was called by a friend of mine from Nevada City. He's a brother of my wife's closest friend. He said, Earl? And I said, yes. He said, I'm an alcoholic. What do I do? And I gave him some idea of what you do, and so I made my first twelfth-step call before I ever came into the program. The satisfaction I got from giving him a little of what I had read in those pamphlets far surpassed any feeling that I had ever had before in helping patients. So I decided I would go to my first meeting. I was introduced as a psychiatrist. I belong to the American Psychiatric Society, but I don't practice psychiatry as such. I am a surgeon. As someone in AA said to me once upon a time, there is nothing worse than a confused psychiatrist. I will never forget the first meeting that I attended. There were five people present, including myself. At one end of the table sat our community butcher. At the other side of the table sat one of the carpenters in our community. And at the further end of the table sat the man who ran the bakery, while on one side sat my friend who was a mechanic. I recall as I walked into that meeting saying to myself, Here I am, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, a fellow of the International College of Surgeons, a diplomat of one of the great specialty boards in these United States, a member of the American Psychiatric Society, and I have to go to the butcher, the baker, and the carpenter to help make a man out of me. Something else happened to me. 
This was such a new thought that I got all sorts of books on higher powers. And I put a Bible by my bedside. I put a Bible in my car. It is still there. And I put a Bible in my locker at the hospital. And I put a Bible in my desk. And I put a big book by my nightstand. And I put a 12 Steps and 12 Traditions in my locker at the hospital. And I got books by Emmett Fox. And I got books by God knows who. And I got to reading all these things. And the first thing you know, I was lifted right out of the AA group, and I floated higher and higher and even higher until I was way up on a pink cloud, which is known as Pink Seven, and I felt miserable again. So I thought to myself, I might just as well be drunk as feel like this. I went to Clark, the community butcher, and I said, Clark, what is the matter with me? I don't feel right. I have been on this program for three months, and I feel terrible. And he said, Earl, why don't you come over and let me talk to you for a minute? So he got me a cup of coffee and a piece of cake and sat me down and said, Why, there's nothing wrong with you. You've been sober for three months, been working hard. You've been doing all right. But then he said, Let me say something to you. We have here in this community an organization which helps people, and this organization is known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Why don't you join it? I said, what do you think I've been doing? Well, he said, you've been sober, but you've been floating way up on a cloud somewhere. Why don't you go home and get the big book and open it at page 70 and see what it says? So I did. I got the big book and I read it, and this is what it said. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. The word thoroughly rang a bell. And then it went on to say, Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. And the last sentence was, We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Complete abandon? Half measures availed us nothing? Thoroughly followed our path? Completely give oneself to this simple program? Rang in my swelled head. In 1935, as a physician, I went into psychoanalysis to get relief. I spent five and a half years in psychoanalysis and proceeded to become a drunk. I don't mean that in any sense as a derogatory statement about psychotherapy. It's a very great tool, not too potent, but a great tool. I would do it again. I tried every gimmick that there was to get some peace of mind, but it was not until I was brought to my alcoholic knees, when I was brought to a group in my own community with the butcher, the baker, the carpenter, and the mechanic, who were able to give me the twelve steps, that I was finally given some semblance of an answer to the last half of the first step. So, after taking the first half of the first step, and very gingerly admitting myself to Alcoholics Anonymous, something happened. And then I thought to myself, imagine an alcoholic admitting anything. But I made my admission just the same. The third step said, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Now they asked us to make a decision. We've got to turn the whole business over to some joker we can't even see. And this chokes the alcoholic. Here he is powerless, unmanageable, in the grip of something bigger than he is, and he's got to turn the whole business over to someone else. It fills the alcoholic with rage. We are great people. We can handle anything. And so one gets to thinking to oneself, who is this God? Who is this fellow we are supposed to turn everything over to? What can he do for us that we can't do for ourselves? 
Well, I don't know who he is, but I've got my own idea. For myself, I have an absolute proof of the existence of God. I was sitting in my office one time after I had operated on a woman. It was a long four- or five-hour operation, a large surgical procedure, and she was on her ninth or tenth post-operative day. She was doing fine. She was up and around, and that day her husband phoned me and said, Doctor, thanks very much for curing my wife. And I thanked him for his felicitations, and he hung up. And then I scratched my head and said to myself, What a fantastic thing for a man to say, that I cured his wife. Here I am down at my office behind my desk, and there she is out at the hospital. I'm not even there, and if I was there, the only thing I could do would be to give her moral support. And yet he thanks me for curing his wife. I thought to myself, what is curing that woman? Yes, I put in those stitches. The great boss has given me diagnostic and surgical talent, and he has loaned it to me to use for the rest of my life. It doesn't belong to me. He has loaned it to me, and I did my job. But that ended nine days ago. What healed those tissues, those tissues that I closed? What healed them? I didn't. This, to me, is the proof of the existence of a somethingness greater than I am. I couldn't practice medicine without the great physician. All I do in a very simple way is to help him cure my patients. Shortly after I was starting to work on the program, I realized that I was not a good father. I wasn't a good husband, but, oh, I was a good provider. I never robbed my family of anything. I gave them everything, except the greatest thing in the world, and that is peace of mind. So I went to my wife and asked her, wasn't there something that she and I could do to somehow get together? And she turned on her heel and looked me squarely in the eye and said, you don't care anything about my problem. And I could have smacked her, but I said to myself, grab on to your serenity. She left, and I sat down and crossed my hands and looked up and said, for God's sake, help me. And then a silly, simple thought came to me. I didn't know anything about being a father. I don't know how to come home and work weekends like other husbands. I don't know how to entertain my family. But I remembered that every night after dinner, my wife would get up and do the dishes. Well, I could do the dishes. So I went to her and said, There's only one thing I want in my whole life, and I don't want any commendation. I don't want any credit. I don't want anything from you or Janie for the rest of your life except one thing, and that is the opportunity to do anything you want, always. And I would like to start off by doing the dishes. And now I am doing the darn dishes every night. Doctors have been notoriously unsuccessful in helping alcoholics. They have contributed fantastic amounts of time and work to our problem, but they aren't able, it seems, to arrest either your alcoholism or mine. And the clergy have tried hard to help us, but we haven't been helped. And the psychiatrist has had thousands of couches and has put you and me on them many, many times, but he hasn't helped us very much, though he has tried hard. And we owe the clergy and the doctor and the psychiatrist a deep debt of gratitude, but they haven't helped our alcoholism, except in a rare few instances. But Alcoholics Anonymous has helped. What is this power that AA possesses, this curative power? I don't know what it is. 
I suppose the doctor might say, this is psychosomatic medicine. I suppose the psychiatrist might say, this is benevolent interpersonal relations. I suppose others would say, this is group psychotherapy. To me, it is God. This concludes the reading of Physician, Heal Thyself, from Part 2 of the Personal Stories section of the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful you listened. Stay tuned for our 70th episode, which features Story 10, entitled Stars Don't Fall. As always, it's super easy to listen to the first and second editions of the Big Book, including many stories not published in later editions. Just visit BigBookPodcast.com and listen to your heart's content. Or subscribe for free to all the podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the new Big Book Podcast channel on YouTube. If you've enjoyed listening, I'd be super grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. And please, share this podcast with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the Big Book they ever hear. (laughs) 